Well, with the, the Lord's um, help this evening, we're actually going to be looking at the passage that we read last in, in John. But by way of introduction, just turn to Isaiah chapter uh, 53. So Isaiah chapter 53, and then we'll, we'll jump to, to John after that. And we'll take the words of verse 9 there. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So we're very familiar with um, the words of uh, Isaiah chapter 53. They're, they're very well known to us. Probably the most well known words in the Old Testament. They're the kind of words that Christians often try and memorize and Maybe if you were in, in Sunday school, that's something you did. You maybe memorized or learned the, the particular verses that you find here. And like many well-known words, we can sometimes become so familiar with these kinds of passages that we perhaps miss something of what's going on or fail to understand exactly what's been said in, in the passage itself. And if you read uh, Isaiah chapter um, 53, it's a passage that clearly shows us the, the humiliation of the suffering servant. I think every one of us would be able to, to see that. That is clear. But the passage also turns. It turns on a hinge moment. And after this hinge moment, it begins to speak in fairly exalted terms uh, about this um, suffering servant. So you have this trajectory of humiliation, but then there's a turning point, And then it starts to, to speak in terms of the, the exaltation of this um, suffering servant. And that hinge moment comes there in that verse that I, that I read a, a moment ago in, in verse 9 there. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich uh, at his death. That, that is the hinge moment. That is where this path or trajectory of humiliation turns. And all of a sudden then you start to see the exaltation of the servant. That little word but there is, is the hinge really for the whole passage. And it's a strange verse when you think about it, isn't it? When you actually look at the verse itself, his grave being made with the wicked, yet at the same time with the rich in his death. You know, it sounds almost like a contradiction, doesn't it? If you, if you were coming to that, it would be hard for you to understand it. Aside from the New Testament, it would be hard to understand it. And I imagine that many of the, the Old Testament Jews must have wondered when they read this particular prophecy, how is this going to be fulfilled? How does this actually make sense? How can both these things here actually be true? How can he be um, having his grave with the wicked, but at the same time with the rich in his death? But, of course, we have the account of the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is exactly what we find. We find that this verse is absolutely perfectly fulfilled in the gospel itself. Because there he had his um, grave, his um, place of death with the wicked. Because he, he died the death of a criminal. He died the death of a wicked person. But of course, amazingly, in the providence of the Lord, he actually receives a royal burial. It's amazing, those two things. He dies... The death of a criminal, but he has the burial of a king, a royal burial. And I'll say a little more about that in a few moments. But this evening, as we prepare for our communion weekend, I want us to, to jump now forward to John 
and uh, chapter 19. So you can jump forward uh, to John chapter 19. And we're going to think about this um, burial scene of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 38 uh, down to verse 42 there. So John 19 verse 38 down to 42. The burial scene of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of that passage that we referred to just a few moments ago in in Isaiah. And this uh, burial scene is a scene that um, draws our attention to uh, two characters. We find two characters here. Um, One character who we've met before uh, a couple of times, and another character who we're really meeting for um, the first time in the pages of Scripture. And these two characters are uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And what I want to do tonight, just for a, for a few moments, is I want to look at three things with you. Uh, I want to look at uh, Joseph of Arimathea, first of all. And then I want to look at Nicodemus uh, in relation to this um, burial scene. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, I want to ask the question, what kind of burial do they actually give Jesus? So these three things, we'll look at Joseph first. Then Nicodemus, and then ask the question off the back of that, what kind of burial do they actually give to the Lord Jesus Christ? So first of all, let's look at uh, Joseph. So you see there in verse uh, 38, he's the first uh, character that we find in the scene. So what do we know here about Joseph of Arimathea? What do we learn here, or what do we learn when we put all the, the gospel narratives together? Well, we know, first of all, that this man was a rich man. And we know that because Matthew tells us that. In in Matthew's uh, account of this, Matthew describes uh, Joseph of Arimathea as a rich man from Arimathea. So we know he's a rich man. That's one thing we know. Uh, But we also know from Mark's account that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's a member of the uh, Jewish council. Um, the, the Jewish council, of course, which ultimately put um, Christ to death. Uh, and because he's a member of that Jewish council, that means he's quite a powerful man. He's quite an influential man. So he's a rich man and he's quite a powerful man in terms of um, the, the nature of the, the religious uh, committees. But John here, John doesn't describe um, Joseph of Arimathea here. He doesn't describe him as a rich man. Um, he doesn't describe him as a powerful man either. He doesn't highlight the fact that he was in the Sanhedrin. That's not how John introduces us to this man, Joseph of Arimathea, at all. Amazingly, John describes him by highlighting the most important aspect of his identity. And the most important aspect of the identity of this man, Joseph, is not that he is rich. The most important aspect of his identity is not that he's powerful. The most important aspect of his identity is not that he's part of the the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council. The most important aspect of this man's identity is that he is a disciple of Jesus. That's what we read here. Joseph, a disciple of Jesus. This rich man, this relatively powerful man, this man who sat on this um, Sanhedrin, who put Jesus to death, he was a disciple. That's quite remarkable. He was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But John also makes the important point that he's not just a disciple. He's a secret disciple. We read there, he was a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he's a secret disciple. You see, John has already previously hinted to us about the fact that there are a number of um, Jewish uh, religious uh, leaders who are actually secret disciples. He's already told us that before. And back in John chapter 12 and in verse 42, we read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. That's the, the religious authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So John's already told us there's some amongst the religious leaders, amongst these Jewish people who actually do believe But they're not saying anything. They are secret disciples. And here, this man, Joseph, he is one of these. He believed Jesus. But his faith was weak. His faith was weak. And he didn't have the boldness to to make his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ to make that visible. He didn't have the boldness to tell others about his faith. And the main reason for this was fear. Fear, just as I mentioned in the the previous verse. He was scared. He was scared of um, the other uh, Jewish leaders. He was scared how um, the other Jewish uh, members of the the Sanhedrin, how they would relate to him if, if he came out and said that he was a disciple. He's scared of what other people are going to think. And ultimately, he's he's scared that he's going to get thrown out of the synagogue. He has this kind of fear. And and perhaps as well, he's scared of um, losing this sense of honor and prestige that that he has amongst the people. Because you would have that being a member of the Sanhedrin. You would have this sense of honor. And perhaps he's scared if he came out on the side of Christ, that he would lose that sense of honor. Perhaps even lose that sense of honor and prestige in the sight of his own peers in the Sanhedrin. He's scared, (coughs) fearful of losing these things. So Joseph, he keeps quiet. And even when uh, Jesus is on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't um, intervene and he doesn't come in and try and uh, defend him at that point. He doesn't at all. Joseph remains quiet initially, first of all. And that's... Of course, something that continues to be a stumbling block to people today. This kind of fear. You know, there are some people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But because their faith is at a very early stage, because their faith is perhaps quite immature, they don't make that known. They have faith in the Lord, but they don't make that faith known. Known. They, they hide it. And very often the reason that they, they hide it is just like what we have here, because of fear. And perhaps there might be some people in here tonight, and that may well be the case for you. Perhaps you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have faith in the Lord. Perhaps you're a disciple in the Lord. But you have this fear that's holding you back from actually stepping out and actually Telling others that you are one of the Lord's. And that fear can be um, different things. Perhaps you are fearful of how others might react. That's quite a a common one. Um, Fearful perhaps for how your family might react. Um, Fearful perhaps for how your friends might react. Or fearful for maybe how your colleagues or your neighbours might 
uh, react to this news if you show that your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the kind of fear that we experience in, in our culture, it's, um, it's not the kind of fear uh, which by we're fearful of being ostracized by our families and our friends. That's not a that's not really a fear that we have, generally speaking. There are parts in the world, different cultures, where that is a genuine fear, um, that if you put your faith in Christ, you will be ostracized. But for us, generally speaking, that's, that's not our fear. We're not scared that we're going to be um, ostracized by our family or ostracized by our friends. But the fear that we experience is generally this fear of our losing respect in the eyes of others. And that's something that keeps people from actually professing faith, um, fear of losing this respect in the eyes of others, or fear perhaps of being seen as weak, being seen as weak in the eyes of other people, because if we put our faith in Christ, others might see us as weak, and that can prevent us from uh, showing our faith. And like Joseph here, we can try and hide our faith. But the thing is, you cannot hide your faith forever. You cannot be a secret disciple forever. There's some people that'll say there's no such thing as a secret disciple. And you may have heard that. I've heard that plenty of times. There is such a thing as a secret disciple. Because we're reading about a secret disciple here. There's no question that there's, there's such a thing as a secret disciple. You can get a secret disciple. But what people are getting at when they say there's no such thing as a secret disciple is that when you come to faith, when you have faith in the Lord and when you believe, when that seed of faith is there in your heart, it will grow. It has to. If you're one of the Lords, it will grow. That love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that will grow. Your love for uh, the Lord and God, that will grow. And as these things grow, it becomes impossible to hide your faith. So you can start off as a secret disciple, absolutely. But if you're truly the Lord's, you cannot keep that secret forever. There comes a point where you have to show it, where that faith and that love for the Lord just explodes out and there's nothing you can do to hide it at all. And here, uh, Joseph reaches that point. And what is it that tips him over the edge here? What, what is it that brings him to, to publicly make known his uh, allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it? The cross. That's exactly What's happened? It's the cross. The cross is the point at which he now has to show his allegiance to the Lord. Because Joseph has obviously seen the uh, events of the cross. He has um, seen the Lord Jesus Christ um, die. And as he has seen everything that Jesus has done, he is compelled, absolutely compelled, to take a stand for Christ. You see, when you realize what it is that Christ has done for you, when you realize the extent to which he has suffered, when you realize all these things, you, you cannot but take a stand for the Lord. Um, you can hide initially perhaps, but the more you see of what he has done, the more you see of, of the significance of his death and his suffering, you get to a point where you cannot but. You cannot but show your allegiance to this man. Like the, the psalmist in Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? In other words, what will I do when I think about all that the Lord has done for me? What will I do for him? I will take the cup of salvation 
and call upon the name of the Lord, I will pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. And here in this passage, we see Joseph. He goes from fearful silence to incredible boldness. And he tells, finally he tells. And it's quite remarkable because not only does this man now make his faith known here in this passage, he, he makes it known in quite a, an amazing way. He doesn't just tell his neighbor or tell someone in his family. He goes to Pilate. He goes to the governor himself, the Roman governor, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And by doing that, he's effectively showing his allegiance to this man in the most public of ways possible. He asks for the body of Jesus. Now, that wasn't um, normal procedure uh, to go and to ask for um, the body of those who had been um, executed. Uh, usually, um, for the, the, the bodies of those who had been uh, killed in this way, usually they'd be thrown in some kind of um, common uh, burial plot. Or if they weren't thrown in a common burial plot, they would be thrown in a, in a rubbish heap um, outside the city, a place which uh, continually burned. Uh, but here, um, Joseph, who isn't even a family member, you can maybe understand if it was a family member, a man who's not even a family member, he comes and he asks for the body, he asks for the remains of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he might have expected to have been laughed out of, out of Pilate's sight when he asked for that. You know, there's no way I'm going to give the body of Jesus to you. But amazingly, the Lord was at work there even in, in, in Pilate, and Pilate allowed Joseph uh, to take the body and the remains of, of Jesus. So Joseph here is gone from being a, a fearful secret disciple who, who won't even um, speak up uh, for uh, Jesus to a, a fearless, bold disciple. As he makes his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes that known in a very public way. And that's exactly what the Lord expects of all of his people. Every single one of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord expects. The Lord does not expect us to, to have a fear of anyone or anything. Or for us to allow that fear of anyone or anything. Stop us from taking that stand and showing people that our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see what Christ has done for us. When we see the extent of what he's done for us. We can't do anything but step forward and show our faith in Jesus. So that's Joseph. But I want to turn now to this other man, this man Nicodemus. So look at verse 39 there. And we read about Nicodemus there. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came. Now, unlike Joseph, um, we know a little more about uh, Nicodemus. We know a little more about Nicodemus because he actually appears in the gospel narratives um, a couple of times um, before this. We, we, we read of him a number of times in the scriptural account. And the, the first time that you read of him is back in John and chapter 3. That's a well-known uh, chapter in the gospel of John, John 3. And in John chapter 3... In that passage, we actually read that he also is one of the rulers 
of um, the, the, the Sanhedrin. He's, he's one of these uh, council members. So Nicodemus is one of these council members as well, part of the, the Sanhedrin. But even early on, even early on in the, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but way back in uh, John chapter 3, even then, Nicodemus shows some signs of having an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows some signs of being curious to learn from Jesus. And in that passage in, uh, back in John chapter 3, we actually read that um, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night. And he, he came to Jesus for a reason, because he wanted to inquire of Jesus. He wanted to learn something of Jesus. So he's inquiring here. Now, at that particular point, we, we, we can't be sure whether he was born again. It doesn't, it doesn't read as though he was a born again believer at that point, back in, in John chapter 3. And I think you can infer that from the fact that when Jesus goes on to um, ask him or to, to tell him about being born again, remember, Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's talking about. Um, Jesus is explaining the need to be born again. And Nicodemus thinks, what, do I need to go back into my mother's womb and, and be, be born again? He's not understanding these things. And the fact that he's not understanding what it means to be born again, that suggests that uh, perhaps more than likely uh, by this point he wasn't uh, actually a believer. Uh, but although he wasn't perhaps a believer, as early as chapter 3, you can at the very least see that he's got some kind of an interest in Jesus. Uh, but of course he, he keeps that interest hidden. And some people will say that's why he came to Jesus by night. You often hear that, that he came by night because he didn't want others to see that uh, he was interested in Jesus. And that may be something that uh, we can relate to even in here. Maybe there are some in here who maybe you have an interest in Jesus, uh, but you don't want others to know that. Um, you have an interest and maybe you have questions that you, you want to ask about the faith. But again, you don't want others to know that. So you don't, you don't let on. You maybe find out about these things in the, in the privacy of your own home. But you don't want anyone else to know that you have an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's very much uh, what uh, Nicodemus was like early on. And then after John chapter 3, uh, you don't really hear much more about Nicodemus until uh, chapter 7. Now, chapter 7, Now, that's when um, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're, they're coming together and they're trying to figure out a way to, to get rid of Jesus. They're trying to figure out a way to, to kill um, Jesus. And interestingly, during that particular debate, Nicodemus, he steps in. Nicodemus steps in and he actually tries to stand up for Jesus. He tries to stand up, well, in a tentative kind of way anyway. And he says... Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So you know, that's, a, that's a defense of a kind. It's a tentative defense, yes, but it's, at least it's more than for what we know that Joseph did. We don't read that Joseph did anything at all by way of defense. But at least here, Nicodemus, he's trying to do something, some kind of form of defense. And that did not go down well um, with uh, the other Jewish leaders at all. But what it does is it shows us that Nicodemus, he was being drawn to the Lord. He was being drawn to the Lord. We have seen him inquiring. We have seen him asking questions. We have seen him uh, showing some kind of an interest in the Lord 
uh, Jesus Christ. But now it's, it's kind of gone up a level by, by chapter 7 there. Now he's at least in some way standing up for Jesus and trying to, to defend uh, Jesus in some way. The man who was uh, meeting Jesus by night a few chapters ago. Now it's almost like he's starting to step out into the light. Not not fully walking out into the light, but it's, you, you sense as though he's starting to take steps into the light. There's a change going on here in Nicodemus himself. And the next time we come across Nicodemus is here in chapter 19. And this time, through the actions of Nicodemus, he is effectively making public profession of faith by what he's doing in this passage. He's showing by his um, role in the burial of Jesus. Yet he is showing his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice in this um, passage here. That neither Joseph or Nicodemus. Neither of them actually make a a verbal uh, confession here. To say um, that Jesus is their Lord. Um, Neither of them. From what we read anyway. Neither of them do that. But their actions speak. And actions speak, don't they? Actions speak. And their actions here, they speak. They both stand out of the shadows. They were hidden away for a time. But by this point in the gospel narrative, they're out of the shadows. And they're stepping forward. And they're acting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're publicly showing their allegiance to him. Now, of course, it's important to confess with our mouths. Uh, Of course it's important um, what we say and and confessing with our lips. These things are very important. But so also is our actions. Because we can testify by our actions as well. We can testify by our coming out on the side of the Lord. We can testify by stepping ourselves, stepping out of the darkness, out of the shadow and into the light and showing others of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, God willing, that's exactly what we'll seek to do on this uh, Lord's Day as we um, seek to to come to the the banqueting table of our King and as we seek to um, take the the cup that our King has prepared, as we seek to take the the bread that has been broken uh, for us, as we come and as we take our place at that table, in a very public way, by our actions, we haven't necessarily said anything with our, with our mouths, but by our action of actually doing that, we are showing that this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is indeed our King. We are professing our faith in him, the one who died to save us. And, and here, that's what Nicodemus is doing. You see it in his actions. You see it in his actions. He has gone from uh, being a mere inquirer uh, back in chapter 3, to tentatively defending in uh, chapter 7. Now he's, he's boldly proclaiming by his actions in uh, John chapter 19 here. So you see a process. You can follow a process taking place in the life of Nicodemus here. And that's a process which many of us have experienced. You know, maybe you remember a time here tonight uh, before... Um, you came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you remember a time when you were an inquirer. 
Like, like Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. You were an inquirer. You had questions. You didn't have saving faith, but you had questions. You were interested to know. And like Nicodemus, you were hiding these things. But then the Lord began to work in your heart. And a little later on, perhaps, you started to be aware of yourself almost defending Christ. And if somebody said something against the church or a Christian or Christ, you would say something. You didn't like it. You didn't like it when people slandered the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see yourself growing from just inquiring to defending, tentatively perhaps, but defending. And then the Lord eventually brings you to the point of saving faith itself, and then you're able to stand out on the side of Christ. Perhaps many of you can follow that kind of process in your own lives. And that's exactly what happens here with Nicodemus. And like Joseph it seems as though the death of Christ is it's what's brought Nicodemus to this point of making his uh, faith public. It's, it's the death of Christ. That seems to be the, the, the final catalyst that, that makes him uh, show his faith uh, in the Lord. But you might say, well, yes, but how do you actually know that Nicodemus is a believer. Because uh, when we read about Joseph, we're told in the passage, Joseph the disciple. So there's, there's no doubt about Joseph. But Nicodemus, we don't read here that Nicodemus is a believer. We don't read here in the passage that Nicodemus is a disciple. You could argue, well, maybe, maybe Nicodemus is just helping Joseph out. Maybe he's a friend of Joseph and maybe Nicodemus feels sorry for Jesus and everything that's happened to him. And, and maybe that's why um, Nicodemus is helping out uh, Joseph here with this um, burial process. But that's to seriously misunderstand uh, the actions of Nicodemus um, here. And to better understand uh, the actions of Nicodemus here, I want us to, to move on to our um, third point this evening. And uh, much more briefly, our third point, what kind of burial do they actually give to Jesus? What kind of burial do, do um, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus give to Jesus? Well, you'll notice when Nicodemus uh, comes, he comes with something. He doesn't come empty-handed, does he? He comes with something. In verse um, 39, we read, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Now, that was common practice um, to, to, to take spices and to, to apply spices to the remains before a, a burial. That was very simply just to take away from the, 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 the stench of death itself as the, the body would um, become corrupt. It was something that was often um, done. But what wasn't common was the sheer amount of spices used here. This was, this was an unbelievable volume of spices that were used. 75 pounds. A, a, an enormous amount. And so much that Nicodemus probably couldn't even carry this himself. He would no doubt have had to have had servants to, to help him to, to carry all this. There was that much of it. That is not normal. That did not normally happen. So the question that that leaves us with is why so many spices. Why so much of these spices? And the only time that that kind of amount of spices were, were used were for royal burials. The burial of a king. The only time 
the only time. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. Um, Here, Nicodemus and Joseph, they're not treating the body of Jesus as just some criminal. They're not treating the body of Jesus um, even as just some religious leader. They're treating the body of Jesus as a king. And they're giving him a royal burial. Unbelievable. So by coming with these masses of spices, Nicodemus is uh, telling us here exactly what he thinks of this man. He's telling us here, this man is my Lord and this man here is my King. So yes, we don't read Nicodemus was a disciple. We don't read Nicodemus was a believer. But you can see in his actions and all the spices that he's taking, the way he's treating this, this man as a king, you can see that Jesus is his Lord and is his king by his actions. And you know, we have to ask ourselves tonight, is that true of our actions? Our actions should always show that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and our King. You know, others should be able to see how we act, how we are, how we speak, and they should be able to, to say, well, his King is the Lord. Her King is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see that here through the actions of Nicodemus. So the body of Jesus, which has been uh, beaten and spat on and um, pierced, now here all of a sudden it's been treated as the body of a king, a royal burial. And in verse 41, you see there that near the the place of uh, crucifixion was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, we know from the the other gospel writers that that was actually um, Joseph's own tomb. And again, the fact that it was empty, that meant that it was a rich man's tomb, because poor people were, were, were mass buried. But this tomb was empty. A rich man's tomb, a tomb fitting for a king. And here that's exactly what's happening. Nicodemus comes with the spices. Joseph comes with the tomb. And they give the Lord Jesus Christ a royal burial. He was with the wicked at the moment of his death on the cross. But now that the work of the cross is over, Now that his his death has come, now the Father is, as it were, ensuring that the body of Jesus is treated in an exalted fashion. It is treated the way a king would be treated. Now, we often think of the exaltation of Jesus starting with his resurrection. Um, But but in in a sense, the exaltation begins with a burial, doesn't it? Because the, the burial is the burial of a king. He's no longer treated as a criminal. At that point, with the burial itself, he's been treated as a king. So, tonight, we've seen these uh, two men who, for different um, reasons, um, stepped uh, out of the shadows, away from being secret, hidden disciples, and they came and they, they showed their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they felt compelled to do that. Even if it meant they might um, lose their status, 
even if it meant that they might lose their respect of their fellow um, Sanhedrin members, even if it meant they were to get thrown out of the synagogue. It doesn't matter. At that point, they are so compelled to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ that all these other things become insignificant. When they considered what Jesus had done for them, then it was a small thing for them to stand out, to step out of the shadows and to show their love and their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God willing, this uh, Lord's Day at uh, the Lord's uh, table, uh, we will do the same thing. We will step out of the shadows of this dark world. And it is a dark world. feels like it's getting darker every day. But as we come to the table, we will step out of the shadows of our dark world and we will show our allegiance to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if our faith is in Christ tonight, then we must be obedient to that command, for it is a command, to come and to find ourselves sitting at that table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. A heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel. We give you thanks that in the gospel we see a suffering servant, a suffering saviour, suffering for our sins, the sins of your people. But yet we don't just see a suffering servant and a suffering saviour, but we see an exalted servant and an exalted Saviour, And even now you are risen at the, the very right hand of the majesty on high. And your ear is bowed down to us even as we gather in this place tonight as we come and as we seek to worship you. We know that our Saviour is not one who is in a tomb. is not one who is in a grave. But you are one who is alive and alive forevermore. The risen living Saviour. So help us to remember that. Even this weekend, we remember not only the death, but also the victorious resurrection as well. So we ask, O Lord, that you would continue with us throughout the remainder of this weekend. Do us good. Strengthen us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll uh, bring our service to a close by singing in Psalm 45 again, this time in the Sing Psalms. Psalm 45, that's page 60, and we'll sing um, verse um, 6 uh, to 9. That's the A version. Uh, page 57, sorry. Verse 6 to 9. Your royal throne, O God, will last throughout eternity. Your kingdom scepter will be one of truth and equity, anointing you with oil of joy. Your God has made you great because you care for righteousness and wickedness you hate. With aloes, myrrh, and cassia, in fragrant robes you're clad. From palaces of ivory, stringed music makes 
you glad among the women of your court. King's daughters take their stand. The royal bride in finest gold appears at your right hand. So we'll sing uh, the verses 6 to 9 there to God's praise. We'll stand to sing. <coughs> Saviour Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit continue with you all now and forevermore. Amen.